You know, some people enjoy composing their own music, chord by chord, and others are happiest when they come across that one perfect song. Work is not a lot different than that. Whether you prefer building your own workflow or using a pre-made template, with Monday.com, you and the team can work in a way that's comfortable for everyone. Tap the banner to go to Monday.com and build your own amazing workflow or find an awesome template. No judgment. At the time the full extent of his crimes became clear in October 2012, Jimmy Savile was still revered as a British institution. His name was emblazoned throughout hospitals across the UK. Streets were named after him. But during the weeks that followed, over a year after his death in 2011, Savile was revealed as one of Britain's most prolific sexual abusers. That is a complete flight of fantasy. For those that don't know him, it's hard to articulate exactly how famous Savile was in the UK. His bleached hair, gold jewellery and outlandish clothes were cultivated to make him stick in the collective memory of the British people. When he rose to fame in the 1980s, most UK presenters spoke stiffly in perfect English. And as an unrefined miner from a working class area, Savile felt like a fresh, genuine voice. Good morning, my sweetheart. How's things? Give us a kiss, baby. He became as established as the likes of Oprah Winfrey or David Letterman, the sort of household name whose fame spanned generations. Private pandemonium. Many parents grew up listening to him on Radio 1, and their children watched him on Jim Will Fix It, a hugely popular show which ran from 1975 to 1994, often receiving 20,000 letters a week from its enraptured audience. Savile also presented Top of the Pops. Good evening, ladies and gentlemen, welcome to Top of the Pops. A music show which, at its peak in the 70s, was watched by 15 million people a week, around a quarter of the British population at the time. But Savile's novelty figure persona hid horrific secrets. Over his 53-year career, Savile abused countless victims, aged 5 to 75. After his death, over 450 people came forward with allegations. Being able to lock things away was the way I coped. His predatory behaviour was allowed to flourish for over five decades, and Savile's power and calculating influence meant that many accusations about his behaviour were dismissed as ridiculous. That sort of thing did happen in the pop business. Savile was able to escape justice for so long because of his proximity to influential people. It's difficult to reconcile with his clownish persona, but he wielded genuine power. He became synonymous with large demonstrative charity projects, raising over £40 million through events that often gained widespread media coverage. He was awarded an OBE in 1972 and a knighthood in 1990, one of the highest honours the Crown can bestow. No, it really is mine. Be sure? It is mine, I'm telling you, it's mine. <laughs> Tell them it's mine. It is mine. Thought I'd nicked it. He was an unofficial advisor to members of the royal family, the governor of Broadmoor, a high-security psychiatric hospital, and an esteemed member of the Catholic Church. He regularly dined with Margaret Thatcher while she was Prime Minister and met the Pope on his visit to the United Kingdom. He was friends with some of the most famous musicians in the world. Governments, the monarchy and established British institutions such as the BBC and NHS all trusted Savile. This place would not be in existence without Jimmy Savile.
But his benevolent persona was a lie, created to overshadow the truth about who and what he was. Some celebrities and producers did raise concerns about Savile's behavior, but nothing ever came of it. And if they were ignored, there was even less chance of hearing the voices of the vulnerable, disenfranchised people upon whom Savile preyed. The revelations about Savile led directly to Operation Nutri, a police investigation into sexual abuse allegations, which led to the conviction of other British celebrities, such as Rolf Harris, Gary Glitter and Dave Lee Travis. You can watch the full story in Jimmy Savile, A British Horror Story, available on Netflix now. I am often tempted. Mm. In fact, my case comes up next Thursday. <laughs> Hey, lovely listeners, and welcome back to Crime Analyst and to this fascinating interview behind the scenes with Marion Jones, who, along with Liz McKean, lifted the lid on Jimmy Savile's horrific and prolific offending behaviour. Now, before we dive back in, I want to pay tribute to all the victims who spoke out and also to those who have perhaps not been able to. I also want to give you a trigger warning before we dive back in as we're going to be talking about sexual abuse and the very prolific perpetrator. Listener discretion is advised. So we're going to pick back up where we left off in part one. Marion said the story sort of went away, and I asked him about the number of victims he and Liz spoke with. Okay, so let's rejoin the conversation. How many victims did you end up talking to, you and Liz, but between you to begin with? Because I know you, you were looking on Friends Reunited, which I don't know if it exists anymore, but it just shows the power of, you know, social media and so on, that you were looking and because it would pique your interest. How many did you start to talk to, first of all, and then did that grow into a, a bigger number between the two of you? Well, I'd started seeing on Friends Reunited, which was the first big social media platform in Britain, it was reuniting school friends. I would have a look at Duncroft on there, and I started seeing hints about Savile maybe about 2008. Round about that same time, The Sun published a picture of Savile at a children's home on Jersey, in Jersey, which is called Haute de la Garenne and was notoriously the centre of a huge child abuse scandal. And it was a picture of him there, and it said, but he's not an abuser. But it was obvious to me that the son obviously had something, but they couldn't say it. And at that same time, I'm starting to see these things on Friends Reunited, which suggest something had happened at Duncroft. But it's not until early 2011 that I read an account on the web by a woman called Karen Ward, and she's written one of these self-penned autobiographies on a literature site where you get advice from people saying you need to tone down the adjectives or why don't you say I rather than you, these sorts of places. And I found it because I was looking for Duncroft, which in those days was quite difficult to find on the web. There weren't very many references. And in that, she describes everything I know about this weird institution the visitor in the Rolls Royce called JS, and immediately it clicks, and she tells what then happened. So 99% of the story I knew, this tells me the extra 1%, what happened when they went out in the car with him, uh, what happened when they got to Television Centre and he took them there. And 
suddenly it's all falling together. But I still can't quite get there. And this is months before he died. From the Friends Reunited site, it looks like there was a police investigation. If we could get to the police investigation, maybe we can tell the story. We just tell the story of the police investigation, and maybe that will be enough to snowball and allow us to get the rest of the story out. But I can't get that confirmation at that time. And I'm stalled, really. You know, I'm doing lots of other investigations, obviously, until his death. But the moment he died, you know, I know this woman is telling the truth. I know she wouldn't stand up in court. You know, because he targeted somewhere where the victims wouldn't be able to stand up in court. But we believe her. We should now tell that story. And Liz and Hannah found maybe another half dozen to ten victims. Half a dozen victims probably and a few witnesses from Duncroft. We then were told about Stoke Mandeville, that they'd been offending there. We suspected Hotel Garen. We're now thinking that every institution he was involved with all the hospitals, everywhere was a site of abuse. And I suppose I was thinking that there might be 100 victims distributed across maybe 10 institutions. Obviously, that turned out to be a huge underestimate, but that's where we were by the time we were ready to broadcast. Over the months afterwards and over working on subsequent documentaries on Savile, I ended up you know, interviewing dozens of victims and talking to dozens of victims. It wasn't new to me because I'd worked on paedophiles in the Catholic Church and so on. You know, you you develop your skills on doing this, how to talk to people, getting people to trust you and behaving in a trustworthy way. But yes, I mean, for me, in a way, I almost didn't notice that there was only one victim because for me, they were all there in my mind, all the victims I'd talked to, including Sam, as she was called in the film. So in, in a way, perhaps I didn't notice the lack of victims because they were there for me. And you managed to get, well, in the early days, someone went on camera. One of the victims did go on camera and was brave enough and courageous enough to do that. That's a big leap of faith, isn't it? Uh, certainly back then, too, to go on camera. And that's when you really felt that the story was going to run. And then, of course there was a change of mind. Can you just talk a little bit about that? Yeah, so on the 14th of November 2011, we went to see Karen Ward, a woman I've already mentioned, who'd written this autobiography. I deliberately went with as many pairs of eyes as possible. So it's myself, cameraman, Hannah, our researcher, Liz, who's doing the interview, so we could all focus on that. You want to know what people's reaction is. You don't want to rely on your own reaction. And we talked to her for an hour, and then we did an hour-long interview, and we came out of there, and we were totally convinced. Jumping in here, as I want you to hear Liz McKean talking about that interview with Karen Ward in 2005, here's a clip from the Tip Off podcast. You just know when someone's telling you the truth, really. I mean, I, I, uh, how many interviews had I done before I'd interviewed Karen Ward? Hundreds, in all sorts of situations. And you just have a feeling for it. You just know. And by the time we did interview her, we'd spoken to so many other people who'd been at Duncroft School that, that all were telling a very similar story, often about the same events. But it was meeting her and talking to her. That was it then. I absolutely knew that she was telling the truth. I didn't have any doubt about it. Let's rejoin the interview. 
Here's Marion. But she said to me, the BBC will never let you show this. And I said, you know, the BBC was bad in the old days, you know, when Savile was there. But, you know, they're not like that now. Uh, how wrong I was. We got to the point that we had confirmation that there'd been a police investigation of him. And it was scheduled to go out on the 7th of December. But on the 29th of November, suddenly the brakes were put on it. The day that the Christmas schedules came out for the BBC, the day that the BBC announced that the whole of Christmas was going to be a tribute to Jimmy Savile with a special Jim will fix it, you know, biographies of him on every channel. On that day, we were told that the story was effectively dead. We were told that Jimmy Savile being a paedophile wasn't a story, that Jimmy Savile being a paedophile at the BBC wasn't a story, that Jimmy Savile being a paedophile at institutions up and down the country wasn't a story. It would only be a story if there'd been a mess up by the police or by the Crown Prosecution Service. It was madness. And that is when the rows, you know, with Liz McKean storming into the editor's office, me perhaps doing it slightly more quietly, but just as angry. Uh, but fortunately, like Liz and myself, through everything that then developed, because a year later when the story finally did come out, the BBC not only tried to, you know, the BBC which had covered up for Savile and then covered up again by stopping us putting our investigation out, now tried to cover up the fact that we'd even investigated. The BBC told the world there had been no investigation, a couple of calls from a work experience person, that was it. And it was completely untrue. And myself and Liz just said, we are not going to go along with that. We put it in writing. You know, if there's any inquiry into this, we are going to tell the truth. And the great thing was that we could just stand back to back. You know, I felt absolutely 100% sure of Liz. You know, I could 100% rely on her. And I think the BBC, again, misogynistically thought I was the target. You know, if they could deal with me, the problem would go away. So they focused their fire on me, not realising that Liz was every bit as much, you know, part of this as I was. And, you know, it saved me. I would not have got through that without Liz to, you know, stand back to back with me. Calling all lovers of mystery. Prepare to don your detective hat in June's Journey, a free hidden object mobile game that delves into the captivating journey of June Parker, a self-proclaimed detective on a quest to unravel the mystery surrounding her sister's untimely death. Take a trip in time to the glitzy 20s and play as June, deciphering clues and unveiling secret plots within thousands of beautifully illustrated scenes. The thrill is endless with new chapters added weekly, allowing you to not only enjoy the detective adventure, but also to personalize and decorate your very own Orchid Island where the story takes place. How sharp are your detective skills? Find out when you download June's Journey on your Android or iOS device or play online via Facebook games. Your detective journey awaits. You said so many really important things there. The fact that it wasn't just a cover-up. The statement that went out was that there was no investigation. And so for you and Liz, I mean, yes, smart of you to take a team and to have Hannah there. But how that must have felt for you and then how you communicate that or what you communicate to the to Karen and to others who've given your they've given you their trust, haven't they? Can you just talk to those two things, you personally, but also how you communicate that to the victims that actually Karen was right, but not only that, they're saying that 
there was no investigation and therefore what? You and Liz were rogue or how did that feel? No, they, they weren't even saying that we were rogue. They were saying that nothing had happened. You know, look away, nothing's happening. You know, nothing to see here was the message, uh, which was never going to stand up because then ITV's exposure came out, front page of every paper, front top of every news bulletin. It didn't take very long for the media to see through the BBC press office's lies on that. And it came a point when both myself and Liz just started talking to people saying, no, it's not true. You know, when you're having lies put out by your own organisation, you have to just say, this isn't true. I'm not yeah. going to stand with this. Uh, you cannot do this. And you talk about that period. There's about 10 days where we were fighting to keep the investigation alive and we were feeding back. I was feeding back to Karen. I'm worried about this, that it may not go out. I was having those conversations with her. But when it was finally pulled, I couldn't, Karen, I don't remember this. I just sent her a text saying, bugger. And I don't think that's what I sent. I, it's more like I would have said bollocks. But yeah, I just, by that stage, I just went, what can we do? What can we do? I handed it over effectively to ITV. And that, nearly a year later, produced the ITV exposure, which exposed what had happened at Duncroft, which used Liz and Hannah and my research, uh, and which got finally got the story out there, which is what I really wanted. Well, I want to just thank you for doing that. I'm sure that that came at great cost in, in many respects, but perhaps you just knew, you know, deep down, it, it's about whether you can live with yourself, right? And when you look in the mirror... Can you live with yourself and the decisions that you take? But I really want to thank you for doing that and handing it over to ITV because, of course, then they get the expose and Mark Williams Thomas is situated as the journalist, in inverted commas, ex-police officer that's lifting the lid on this. And that's what the world see. And I guess in some ways the story is bigger than both you and Liz, for sure, but there must be a part of you that would have liked to have broken it because you had the genesis of it, it went back to when you were 16 with your aunt and the questions that you raised. I found that very interesting hearing about that, but also learning about Liz and just the courage, the mental fortitude from both of you. So thank you for you. I know Liz is no longer here, but I'm sure her family appreciate the partnership that you had and just the, the courage that it took you both to do that. Here's what Liz had to say about it when speaking with BBC Panorama in 2012. I was very unhappy the story didn't run because I felt we'd spoken to people who collectively deserved to be heard. Um, they weren't heard. And I thought that that was a failure. And you, were you concerned that that actually compounded the, um, the hurt? Yes, I've, you know, I felt we had a responsibility towards them. We'd, we'd got them to talk to us, but above all, we did believe them. And so then, for their stories not to be heard, yes, I felt very bad about that. I felt very much that I'd let them down. Yeah, I mean, you know, her wife Donna has been, you know, really powerful on this as well. And, you know, she was hugely supported at home as well. And that was very important. I, I was supported very heavily by family and friends as well. I mean, there was a moment before the Exposure TV programme came out when people I knew at the BBC were wobbly. They weren't sure whether to believe the BBC line or what we were saying. 
as soon as the programme came out, 90% of people at BBC were on side. It's not true about senior management, of course. And what's interesting is that when you look at the emails that were being exchanged, when Savile looked like he was going to die the year before, when he finally did die, senior managers are saying, we can't make an honest film about him because of his dark side. They knew darn well. You know, from 1990 on, when Lynn Barber wrote that article, people were talking. From 2000, when Louis Theroux made a documentary, which again raised the paedophile rumours, the general public was talking about Jimmy Savile. The idea that the BBC senior managers, people who actually knew back, you know, their predecessors in 1973 had actually asked Savile about bringing underage girls back to his flat. He'd admitted it, but said it was for their own safety. They didn't say to him, stop doing it. They said, you know, are the papers going to find out? And the conclusion was the papers, because of his fundraising, his celebrity stuff and everything else, and his connections, they weren't going to run it. So it wasn't a problem for the BBC. So two senior people do step down in the BBC, George Entwistle and then and your editor. There was a Pollard review. Does that go far enough? I mean, in terms of the people who were trying to stop things and those who still may be in power, and you talked about misogyny, and I see it in most organisations, of course, but it just seemed a very light, a light touch repercussion, really, and consequence for something so dire and so heinous. Well, Pollard, the Pollard review was an in-house BBC review. They brought in an outsider to run it, but it was then taken over effectively by the BBC's lawyers, hijacked by them. Although Pollard concluded that the BBC, that you know we had the story and it should have run a year earlier, he also came to the conclusion that there must have been a good reason for why the BBC blocked it. But he never came up with what that good reason is. Ten years later, nobody has found a good reason for the BBC to drop it which leaves us with the bad reason, which is they were covering up. You know, the BBC did not want the embarrassment. The BBC did not want the financial penalties, how to pay out to victims. The BBC did not want the damage to its reputation and huge damage to what it always called its key, absolutely key value, which was trust. And that massively damaged the British people's trust in the corporation, which is being exploited now by a government that's trying to destroy the BBC for its own reasons and as a favour to the likes of Rupert Murdoch and so on. It's helped them now that the BBC did this huge self-inflicted blow. I mean, when we were having the arguments that it should run, you know, I put together a memo, which is called the Red Flag Memo, just saying this is what happens if we run it. The BBC looks bad in the old days, but it looks good now. If the BBC goes ahead and doesn't run it, runs the tributes, that is going to be devastating for the BBC. And it was. Absolutely. That was, that was going to be my question, actually. I'm glad you answered it, of what explanation really was given. Because someone, I think it was Pollard, said that the decision was taken in good faith not to run it. But how would you know that? How would you know that? And I felt very confidently that you and Liz would spell things out very clearly as a good investigative journalist does in terms of what the story actually is, what it contains, as well as the risk assessment going either way on it. So it just seemed to be a whitewash to me. And even in the police, 
Um, I've covered various cases that talk to high-level corruption, and in particular, Peter Sutcliffe. I don't tend to talk about the names of the perpetrators, and I tend to, with a serial killer like him, just give the initials. But I was very surprised to see Savile visiting with him and pictures of that visitation. But of course, there were multiple reports to the police. And I think West Yorkshire Police came out with a review that said that there was mishandling of intelligence in inverted commas, which to me sounded like a complete whitewash. Intelligence is information for action. And of course, there were multiple police forces involved. What can you say about the police forces and just the the victims that were brave enough and courageous enough to go forward and the decisions taken not to proceed? And and we'll talk about the Crown Prosecution Service as a separate entity because they took decisions too. But the police response, what in your view was going on there? Well, we know that, you know, in Leeds, Savile had a Friday morning club where he had senior police officers coming around you know, every Friday morning, they'd have a few drinks. He'd have other people who he could find along there. And he was saying, when he was finally interviewed by the Surrey police, he was saying that, you know, I show these people, they show me, you know, letters of complaint and so on. We talk about it. It was very obvious that he felt that the Leeds police were in his pocket. You know, if you look at the sort of letters that are sent by his lawyers to threaten journalists and so on, they always give this impression of protection. His charity connections, his royal connections, prime minister, and police was part of that as well. You know, he he was very, very good at getting the establishment on side and making it very, very difficult to attack. The Russians have this expression that you have a Khrushchev, a roof over your head. And he had that roof. He deliberately constructed that roof to protect him from anything that could come at him. And that was composed of, as you say yourself, you know, the royal family, senior politicians, the police and forces all over the country. You know, he was somebody who would raise money for police charities. He would, you know, he was a good guy. And the cost of taking him on, even if you believed these victims, would be very, very high. Yes, the the phrase I think he said is, I have a collection of senior policemen, a collection of senior policemen. So the problem with corruption is there's just so many people invested in keeping that secret and not being, as I train police officers, professionally curious and asking the right questions. But there were just so many concentric circles. And I always talk about serial perpetrators in that Yes, most perpetrators, if their behavior is unchecked, they are serial. They just, if they, they get what they want, why would they stop it if there's no accountability, no fear of repercussion, no fear of consequence? So he was offending across lots of different victim types and groups in different areas geographically. So the multiple police services that are involved and then decisions, well, I should say the lack of sharing that intelligence and information, not just within a police service, but across them. But then the Crown Prosecution Service played a role in deciding it wasn't in the public interest to prosecute. And each victim not knowing they are one of a number, which in my professional experience, once someone knows they are one of a number, they're much more likely to want to give evidence at trial, to take the next step. But if you feel like it's just you on your own taking on this, I mean, particularly someone like him, 
you feel very alone, very isolated, and you'll probably be much more inclined not to keep pushing and keep asking questions about that. So the Crown Prosecution Service played a role too, didn't they? Yes. I mean, the police and the Crown Prosecution Service at that time were so obsessed with the idea that one witness or one victim might talk to another one and that that would pollute their evidence, that they didn't tell the victims that there were other victims prepared to go to court. And sure, as you say, you know, given the massive power and support that Savile had, are you going to go in as one victim against him in court? You're not. I'm not even sure if you knew there were three or four, but you'd be more likely to, you'd certainly be more likely to if you knew there were three or four others. And yeah, that was a failing by the CPS. To be fair on the CPS, they commissioned a report into it and they adjusted how they dealt with sexual abuse afterwards. They realised they'd got that wrong. Um, but I think there are some people who claim there was some sort of huge conspiracy there. I don't think there was. I think it was just incompetence. But with the police, you know, this is one incident. There are these incidents being reported all over Britain. And that nobody ever puts those together. We're told that he was reported in the late 50s, early 60s. There is a, a Met Police intelligence report from 1964 that names him. You know, there's a huge amount of stuff. Nobody ever put any of that together. Nobody took any initiative. The scale of his offending is unbelievable. I mean, there's another issue here as well in Britain, and that's our libel laws. You know, unlike America, we don't really have very much freedom of speech. And I know journalists after journalists going right the way back to the 60s who tried to expose Savile, and the newspaper lawyers would say, we cannot do this. You know, it's going to cost us a million pounds. For sure, the court will believe Savile over the people we can put up in court. We cannot do this. And that's happened again and again and again in Britain over the years. If our libel laws had been more like America's, I think we would have been spared 100 rapes and 1,000 attacks. Yes, that's, that's huge. And in the Netflix show, you do hear from his lawyer. He chose one of the top QCs, didn't he, Garman, who said to his son... He's not, Savile is not all he's cracked up to be. And when he was pressed about it, and I can't remember who said it to him, that he's a sex offender and a paedophile, he said that may well be true. Yeah, that's Paul Conyu, who was the editor of the Sunday Mirror at the time, who tried to expose Savile in 94. And yes, plainly, Carmen did not believe that Savile was innocent, but he was paid the money, he did the job. You know, he... He was a Rottweiler. You know, he was somebody who in court could destroy any case. One of the most famous soap uh, dramas on British television, Coronation Street, one of their stars was uh, charged with sexual abuse. Carmen managed to destroy the witnesses. Later on, that star had to admit that he had carried out the, the attacks, that he was an abuser. But Carmen, you know, was terrifying if you were a newspaper editor. He would destroy any witness. I mean, you would hope now in the Me Too era, and certainly what we saw with Ghislaine Maxwell, where the lawyers moved to destroy the victims, actually it worked against them. And it's all well and good to test evidence, isn't it? It's all well and good. And it's the way that you do it. 
destroying people in that process and giving them further trauma and some may go on to take their own lives, I believe is is seen as no longer acceptable. So it shouldn't just be about the lawyers and who tells the best story and discrediting the victims in that process. And I do believe in testing evidence as quite rightly true. And perhaps if this case had happened post Me Too, I would hope that there would be a different response, although I'm not 100% confident of that, I have to say. But I think that's an interesting learning point. And I wondered, what other lessons would you say that there are to be learned here, the, uh, the golden nuggets? Because I think with the Netflix show, what I didn't feel it got to was, okay, we've seen that and it's absolutely horrific and Sam's testimony is really important and what you had to say, but how do we protect people better and how do we prevent this from happening again in the future? What are your lessons that, that you would say? There's a very simple fix in Britain that could reduce massively the amount of abuse in institutions. So in America and many other countries, there are what were called mandatory reporting laws. You know, if you're the head of a school or a hospital or a church or the BBC, if sexual abuse is reported to you, you have to report that. In Britain, there is no such law. In Britain, if you are the head, you can do one of two things. You can turn a blind eye, let the abuser carry on. If it gets out of hand to the point that you think it's going to be a problem, you give them a good reference and they go somewhere else and you get rid of the problem. So in Britain, we still have not brought in the one obvious thing that we need to stop another saddle. There is nothing to stop another saddle in Britain at the moment. You talk about me too and so on. In Britain, saddle help change attitudes to victims. A lot of people I know came forward and went to the police after Savile and said, look, I was abused 20 years ago by my uncle. I want to report it. And whereas they were previously not believed they were, in some ways it fed into the whole Me Too um, movement. Uh, this beginning of also holding celebrities up to the public gaze that, again, fed into Me Too. It was possible because in Britain, it was followed by a succession of similar cases. Rolf Harris, who was another popular TV star. There are a whole series of cases like this where people who've been protected by their celebrity and good guy status suddenly could be taken down. And that all fed into the whole sort of Me Too change in a way. Sadly, it's not gone far enough. And in Britain, I still think witnesses have a hard time in court. Uh, we still have appalling prosecution rates for rape and so on, absolutely unbelievably bad prosecution rates. So a lot more needs to be done. But it started a move, and hopefully that move will go a lot further. Yes, there's a lot more, lot more work to be done around victims and when they come forward. And also just understanding that child sexual abuse, well, the survivors of it, most likely won't talk until they're in their third or fourth decade. And it's normally when they have their own child or when something really powerful as an event happens in their life where they feel secure and safe enough to talk about it. And of course, you have various people who say, well, if it really happened, they would have spoken about it at the time. Well, 
that just doesn't happen. And we've seen that, I see that played out in all my casework. So we still have to bust these myths and these stereotypes that people have in their heads, including jurors. But actually, we know once a case goes to court, we're much, much more likely to get a conviction if it's sexual violence and or domestic violence. But it's getting it there in the first place and not having everything played out or someone making a decision, whether it be police or CPS, prior to that process. So we definitely have a lot more to learn. And I appreciate your time and I wanted to keep you for the hour. And I know you've got, you've had a very busy day. So unless there's, is there anything else that you haven't mentioned that you would like to? No, I think, I think you've taken me through most of it. And uh, thanks for your time as well. Well, I appreciate it. And I've really enjoyed is the wrong word to say I've enjoyed talking with you because it's a very heavy subject. But I really thank you for your work on this and pay tribute to Liz again. And I hope that we speak another time in the future. So thank you very much. Thank you. I'm jumping back in here. What a fascinating interview. So many things to think about. And what a team that Marion and Liz made. Also, that last point, well, I hear that all the time. Well, if it really happened, or if they really were abused, they would have done X, Y, or Z. This has been really prevalent recently, and it's deeply troubling. Even if you sadly have been victimised, you know about your own situation, but not necessarily about someone else's. Everyone's situation is nuanced and detailed, And it can be idiosyncratic to them and the circumstances and the context surrounding that event. But often I see a rush to judgment about what a real victim would do, as well as, unfortunately, I'm seeing a lack of empathy and compassion when someone, well, I'm talking more specifically about women, when women in particular disclose abuse. I'm going to close by saying that whilst we're all busy questioning and judging what a victim did or didn't do, we take our eye off the perpetrators. That plays right into the hand of someone like Jimmy Savile. As I always say, there's no such thing as a one-time rapist, or domestic abuser, or stalker, and we need to get much better at identifying them. That's what our focus, time, and energy should be on, in my opinion. Ask questions of them, and what they did, and how we identify them earlier, and how we better protect victims. So until next time, be curious, ask questions, and always trust your instinct. Here's my final two cents before the episode wraps. If you like what I do, please take two minutes to leave a five-star review wherever you listen to Crime Analyst or on the website www.crime-analyst.com. It really helps others find me and also helps with the ratings. Crime Analyst is written, produced and hosted by me, Laura Richards. Sound engineering by Jason Sheasley at Abridged Audio. Cover art and graphics by Chris Robottom at Syndicate and music by Kilrude.